stand with me if you would as we turn to the book of Ruth, third chapter, continuing in our series this Advent, looking at ruin and rescue, how God, how God is in the business of redeeming his people. Hear God's word, then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of a heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made the la- this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer. Yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did you fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is God's word, and it is absolutely true. It's given to us in love. God of grace, God of compassion, God of kindness, and God of mercy. We who celebrate your coming are people gathered in longing, waiting expectation for the full and final redemption that you have promised. We're waiting for resurrection. We cry out, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom your captive, Israel. So, Father, this day, help us see that you are good and gracious 
and kind and faithful, and you've always been that way. By your spirit, speak now, for your servants are listening. We ask these things not for our sake, but for Jesus' sake. So let's remember where we are. In chapter 1, Naomi and her family, uprooted from Bethlehem, the house of bread, and sojourned to Moab. This was not God's promised land. But they took matters into their own hands. And her sons, Malon and Kilion, married Moabite women. That was also not exactly part of God's plan. And her sons died. And her husband died. And it left them in a strange land with no resources and no hope at all. They came back to Bethlehem because they heard that even during this very dire time of the judges that God had visited his people and that there was once again, there was once again food. The famine was gone. And Naomi wanted to go back alone. And Orpah, one of her daughters-in-law, was eventually persuaded to go back to Moab, but Ruth wasn't. Ruth said, wherever you go, I go. Wherever you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God is my God. And wherever you're buried, I'll be buried there too. She came back to Bethlehem and she said, look how empty I am. Look how the Lord's hand has gone out bitterly against me. It was time for them to eat. In chapter 2, we see them going on the welfare program that was set up in Israel. Widows and those in uh, deep economic distress could go and winnow barley along the edges of the field. But as luck would have it, they just happened to happen upon the field of Boaz a distant redeemer, one that could come and conceivably perform a Leverite marriage and redeem this family from ruin. And it just so happened that while Ruth was winnowing barley that day, it just so happened that Boaz was too there that day. And Boaz had taken notice of her. And it wasn't just the scraps that she was able to pick up, but he instructed his harvesters, he instructed his workers to take sheaves out of the bundles and leave them for her for her to glean so that she could have an abundance of supply. And so here we find ourselves once again. Naomi has taken an interest in her daughter-in-law. Naomi feels terrible, too, because her daughter-in-law, when she came with, uh, with Naomi back to Bethlehem, functionally ended her life. She ended her chances for marriage and for a family, for children, for a life of her own. And 
And so here we see Naomi beginning to put together a plan at the beginning of chapter 3. Naomi's beginning to think about Ruth's ultimate welfare. She's beginning to think about Ruth's ultimate um, life as a citizen of Israel and as a follower of Yahweh. And though in the text we see her posing a question, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? It's really better to read this or understand it as a forceful statement of her saying, it is, it is my duty to seek for you rest. She's seeking rest that it may be well with her. She's in a very real sense looking to secure for her peace and security. But she's also thinking about the preservation of Elimelech's line, his inheritance, the continuation of his name. All of this are in jeopardy. And so, therefore, her, her saying, I will seek, um, is really this resolve of, I helped get us into this mess. I'm going to help get us out of this mess. After all, she does this noble thing. She can ensure that there is an heir that Ruth is cared for, and she is as well. And Naomi knows that Boaz has been kind and good to Ruth, and she's now focused on him fulfilling this role of being a kinsman redeemer. Boaz is honorable and strong and good and kind. In verse 2, you hear it in her words, is not Boaz our relative with, with whose young women you were? And then she says, see, he's winnowing tonight barley at the threshing floor. So a little bit about the agricultural process in terms of where we are in, in the timeline. The fields would have been early in the season prepared for seed. Someone would have gone through and plowed the fields. They would have prepared the soil for the planting of seed. The next step would have been the planting of seed. And then this would, we would be at harvest time now. We've seen the harvest happening over the course of the book of Ruth, where they're gathering up the leaves. They're gathering up everything. They're bundling them together. And then they're transporting the barley to the threshing floor. The threshing floor would have been outside of the city gates. And this would have been like a processing place where everyone would be going and winnowing the barley. They would have been separating the wheat from the chaff. They would have been then taking the taking the seed and either crushing it to uh, to produce bread or whatever, or they would have been selling it. Now it's the threshing part of the process. It's when everything's going on that a, that a crop owner's crop is the most vulnerable. It's the most vulnerable either to thievery or to fire or something else. And so the, the landowner, the crop owner, is at this point going to go with his crop to the threshing floor because this is where his wealth is the most exposed to something bad happening. Naomi knows this and knows that it's at this point that Boaz is going to be going with his crop to the threshing floor. So she tells Ruth what to do, verses 3 and 4. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. 
So one of the things that brings some interpretive complication to Ruth chapter 3 is there's an incredible level of ambiguity of exactly what is going on here. And way before we ever have Ruth and Boaz encountering one another, we have ambiguity here with what Naomi is instructing Ruth to do. Everything that we see in verse 4 But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies down, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, he'll tell you what to do. All that can be interpreted in a myriad of ways, and the narrator is intentionally leaving it vague. Why? Well, first of all, what's the ambiguity? One way of understanding it is to see her putting in Ruth in an, see her putting Ruth in an incredibly dangerous situation by telling her to go get her man through manipulation. If that's the case, she's going after a good goal in the wrong way. Another way of reading this is to say that she's signaling that her season of mourning is over and that she is now available and ready to be redeemed. Both of those are likely interpretations because both of those fit the syntax of the language but also fit what could be going on because you'll remember that it was in this season of uh, once a spouse had died, there would be a proscribed season of mourning that you would go through. You would be dressed in garb of mourning. You would be covered in ash. You would be uh, wailing. You'd be crying. There would be a season where you would be expected to be in mourning, and there, there would be a season that the mourning would pass, And you could begin at least outwardly to move on with the normal rhythm of your life. It is therefore conceivable that she was telling Ruth, it's time for you to outwardly demonstrate that the season of mourning of having lost your husband has now come to a close. It's also incredibly possible that she's saying, We've got to fix this problem, and I'm telling you what to do. Go and seduce the man. One of the reasons that it's instructive for us is because many times there is that level of ambiguity in our own lives. We know what should be done. We know what ought to be done. But we go about whatever needs to be done in ways that involve shortcuts. When we're trying to do the right thing, we end up taking shortcuts because we feel like we need the right thing to happen in our time. We begin, again, as we talked about last week, becoming the author of our own story and writing in what we think resurrection in our story ought to look like. So doing the right thing, though it may look like the right thing, can be doing the right thing the wrong way. That makes the right thing the wrong thing. Faith in the Lord, um, being a follower of Jesus, does not automatically mean that pragmatism rules the day. It doesn't mean that whatever, whatever whatever the steps look like to expedite what ought to be done, well, let's just go ahead and do that. 
Being God's people means faithfully waiting on God to be God because we don't actually know what ultimately resurrection is going to look like in our lives. I remember over the years, uh, well-meaning church folk would often say that, that, uh, that oft-quoted, God helps those who help themselves. It's not a Bible memory verse, folks. Ben Franklin never meant that to be in canon. The problem with a statement like that is it sounds true. And that's often what happens is that statements that are very misleading have a nugget of truth in them. It is true that God helps people. Do you know why he helps people? Because he's kind and generous and good. He helps people out of the overflow of his grace. Not because they've put in enough reps or enough work to merit some help from heaven. The idea that God helps those who help themselves is truth. Is truth. God doesn't look at you and say, I'm sorry, I'm not helping you yet. You've not done enough on your part. Does God expect obedience? Yes. Is our faltering, stumbling obedience somehow the magic key that unlocks the blessings of heaven? No. And yet, we fall into that trap. Got to help nudge God along a little bit so you can see I'm really trying hard. So Ruth responds in verse 5. She says, all that you say, I'll do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. This is where the story takes a turn, though, because Ruth takes on incredible amounts of risk in going down to the, flesh, going down to the threshing floor, but not in the reasons um, that you would initially think. She now, we now see Ruth taking center stage in this part of the story, um, So let's dispense with one notion right away. Though there may have been ambiguity in how to understand Naomi's plan, there's absolutely no ambiguity in understanding um, what Ruth did through her actions. Ruth stays true to who we know her to be, as does Boaz. There was no throwing caution to the wind and letting passions rule the day. So let's explore that. So Ruth is obedient to her mother-in-law, but only up to a point. She does, in fact, go down to the threshing floor. She does, in fact, wait until uh, Boaz has eaten and drinking, uh, eaten and had his fill of drink. His heart was indeed uh, full, verse 7. She watches where he goes at the threshing floor, which grain, uh, which heap of grain he goes and lies down in front of to take his rest for the night. And Ruth does, in fact, uncover his legs. There is no underlying Hebrew there, though some scholars have tried to say that, there was, that this is a, a nod and a wink to some impropriety happening on the floor. The Hebrew doesn't support it. It wasn't the warm body of a woman that woke Boaz up. It was the fact that his legs were stinking cold because it's the desert, it's nighttime, and his blanket is off. 
At this point, the plan's going. A plan is going. Something's happening. Ruth is there. It's night. Boaz is awake. Verse 9, he says, who are you? And she answered, I'm Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. See, Ruth, Ruth was not going to let any ambiguity come in here. She asked for an engagement ring. Spread your wings over me can also be translated, spread your garment over me. This would have been symbolic of an engagement to be married. There's also beautiful symmetry in the poetry. Back in verse 12 of chapter 2, what did Boaz say to Ruth as he pronounced blessing over her? In verse 12, he said, Would the Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge? What does she say to Boaz? I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Ruth isn't interested in some sort of fling with Boaz. She's interested in a new family. Why? Her her desire being born out of the committed and faithful love that she was shown by God, that she was now showing others in her life, was for refuge for her and Naomi. While Naomi wanted a husband for Ruth, Ruth wanted a child for Naomi. Her character's not changed here. She's not saying, well, I've come this far. Now let me get everything that's mine. This covenant faithfulness, this love of covenant faithfulness, this love of hesed, this kindness that she is showing in her life is now still to others. It's now that Naomi would have a child, one that would continue in the line of Elimelech and preserve the family line and be an heir for her. If her first kindness was staying with Naomi, her second kindness was marrying the man who could, in fact, legally provide the heir. Ruth was neither marrying for love or money, but for the good of her family. But beloved, listen, it was in God's kindness that though Ruth was not marrying for love necessarily or money necessarily or her own happiness necessarily, but for the good of her family, what God would end up doing is bringing all of those things into her life. Whereas Naomi could never see uh, up until the very, very end that God's hand had never gone out against her, that God had never dealt bitterly with her. Ruth, from the very beginning, once her heart was captured by the love of God, could not see anything else other than the fact that God was good and kind and that ultimately walking in obedience would never mean a loss for her, ultimately. Also, Ruth could have come to Boaz and simply said, you're my kinsman redeemer, do what you're supposed to do. 
But Ruth was instead asking Boaz to act in accord with the spirit of the law, even though he was under no legal obligation to do so. She appealed to him to be the family member who, at his own cost, would act to rescue those whose future had been put in jeopardy, even though he didn't have to do so. There's one other thing about this statement here in verse 9. I am Ruth, your servant. When Ruth initially introduced herself to Boaz, and you remember last week she, she bowed low. And in verse 10 she said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? She said, why have you noticed the the unnoticeable or the unnoticed? She uses a different word to describe herself here. When she first met Boaz, she called herself the Hebrew word that means a lower level servant, noticing the unnoticed. This time she uses the term that means handmaid which is someone who's eligible for marriage. It is with boldness, impetuousness, and irrepressible beauty that Ruth has left all of her cards on the table and waits. Boaz responds in, um, in ways where we can see at least five gracious acts of blessing that he bestows on Ruth. Here's the first one, verse 10. And he said to her, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. May you be blessed by the Lord. Ruth's Ruth's actions here, Boaz sees, are, are even greater than the earlier actions on behalf of Naomi. Instead of pursuing her own desires, pursuing a younger, perhaps a more attractive man, Ruth here pursues Boaz as a redeemer. Let's not load into this pictures of some sort of uh, glamorous Hollywood wedding here. Boaz is an older man. She could have gone after younger men. She didn't. She came to him as a redeemer. He said, you have made this last kindness greater than the first and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Her, her reputation had grown in town from simply being the Moabitess who came back with Naomi to now being the one who was uh, a, a woman of noble character. So if you look at the way the Hebrew Bible is laid out, it's different than the way our Old Testament is laid out. Because there is some debate about the genre of Ruth, where it belongs. In the, in the, in the, um, in the Hebrew Bible, the, the, it's, it's arranged the law, the prophets, and the writings. And so the way that the Hebrew canon is set up, the book of Ruth immediately follows the book of Proverbs. Now that's interesting. 
Because this word here, you are a worthy woman, only occurs one other time in the Old Testament, and it occurs in Proverbs 31. It's as if to say, when you read Proverbs, a worthy woman, who can find her? And then you, how did she get this title? How did she get this, this respect of everyone in town? Listen, she didn't have any sort of social status or otherwise to earn it for her. She was still an alien. She was still a widow. She was a woman, a sojourner, and was childless. So how is it that she would have been known among all in Bethlehem as a worthy woman? Hear this. It's because of the work that God had done inside of her that was so evident everyone else took note. You do understand, right, that your worth and your dignity, your value and your standing has absolutely nothing to do with what you, what you produce externally. Your value is not how put together your world is. Your value is not how everyone else esteems you. And friends, listen, we live in such an incredibly toxic culture where we constantly have no other way to evaluate how I'm doing except to look around and say, how do other people think I'm doing? Can I tell you how exhausting that is? Some of you know. There was nothing that she had going for her. This is not me standing up here and say, so then be like Ruth, because she had nothing going for her. The only thing she did have going for her is the only thing that you and I have going for us, which is that God had dealt kindly with her and done a work inside of her that was flowing up and out through her, and everyone saw that. It wasn't ultimately her reputation that was spreading among the townsfolk in Bethlehem. It was what the, God, what the Lord was doing in her. That was the irrepressible uh, grace and glory that we were seeing in Ruth's life. Verses 12 and 13 uh, give us kind of the to be continued that we'll look at as we come to the end of the book of Ruth next week. And he says, there is another redeemer. There is another one who is closer. In other words, there's another family member who has first rights. We'll talk a lot more about this guy next week. But here's the thing I want you to see for now. Boaz could have said, I am in love and I want the whole world to know about it. I don't care what the law says, you'll be my wife. You know what an idol is? An idol is when you take a lesser thing and make it an ultimate thing. And a lot of times, love and marriage and happiness and whatever is an idol. When my happiness, when my, um, when my fulfillment becomes the thing that's at the core of my life, 
I do really weird and sometimes wicked things in order to see that come to pass. Boaz, however, had rightly ordered love. Because his heart was on the Redeemer, the Lord, the one who had uh, captured the affections ultimately of his heart, he said, this is beautiful and this is great, but there's someone else who has first rights. And so what's the kindness that he shows her? He says, you're going to be redeemed, but the Lord will ultimately direct the steps of how that happens. It's either going to be the nearer Redeemer But if he says no, then I'll do it. He doesn't let his own fulfillment and his own happiness rule and win the day. He lets ultimately his trust for and love for God rule his heart and direct his steps. Lesser loves are kept in submission to the one true abiding love of love for God. So even though Boaz is in love, he doesn't let lesser love trump his most supreme love. Here's the second gracious blessing. He says, you have my word. You're going to be. No more ambiguity. No more waiting. No more uncertainty. This matter is going to get dealt with. Third blessing, verse 13. Boaz commanded her to wait until morning. Why? Remember I said that the threshing floor would have been outside the city gates. This is in the middle of the night. The city gates are closed. There are robbers on the road. Remember, especially during the time of the judges, Israel was not exactly a safe haven, a low-crime zone. He's watching out for her by saying, here, wait here until the morning. She's again being given his protection. And by the way, this, this word that he says, lie down until the morning, Do you know when we've seen that phrase before in the book of Ruth? It's back in chapter 1. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you, Naomi, or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. He's once again taking the words that she would have said to Naomi And she said, and, and Boaz is saying to her, your words of commitment to Naomi are now my words of blessing to you. Paul Miller says that her words of dying love, when she told Naomi her life was over, are now coming back to her as resurrection. Her life really is now just beginning. Here's the fourth gracious blessing in verse 14. So she laid his feet until the morning, but arose before uh, anyone could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He wanted to ultimately make sure, again, that her reputation was preserved. 
He wasn't going to let her reputation be tarnished. He sends her away before the dawn breaks, uh, before people could recognize who she was. Fifth blessing, verse 15. Bring the garment that you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. And then she went into the city. Six measures of barley. So let's be clear about our our measurements here. This would have been close to 80 pounds worth of barley that he put on her back to carry back with her to the city. This is not only a generous gift towards Ruth and Naomi's physical needs, it was also a symbolic expression of Ruth's greater need for a child, which we will soon see fulfilled by Boaz. This was given, verse 17, so that Ruth would not go back empty to her mother-in-law. Look at what he says. You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Again, God's grace being worked out in ordinary circumstances through ordinary people so that once again, Naomi would know that God had in fact heard her prayer, that God had in fact answered her prayer, that though Naomi could only see the heartache that was in front of her, God's graciousness, God's goodness, God's character has never changed and God was dealing abundantly and bountifully with Naomi. though she feels like she came back from from Moab empty. But she is that way no longer because her needs are being fulfilled through Ruth and through Boaz. As a postscript to the story, we see that Ruth does, in fact, tell her mother-in-law about what what happened. But look, she only tells her about the gift. Because Boaz never really proposed to her did he? He simply said he'll go settle the matter. Because until the other matter with the nearer Redeemer had been dealt with, he had no rights to come and pursue Ruth as his wife. So Naomi tells her, wait until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is the last that we hear um, any direct words from Ruth in the book of Ruth. She's mentioned in chapter 4, but she doesn't speak anymore. It was rather the gift, it was the seed, it was the barley that provides the mechanism for her to exit stage left. And for now, once more, the story to, tr- to move um, and take on a different shape. Because see, here's the thing. Though Boaz mentioned that there is yet still a nearer redeemer, there's a lot of meaning and a lot of weight behind that statement. You'll hear me talk about next week, the narrator thinks so little of the nearer redeemer that actually shows up in Ruth chapter four, he doesn't even get a name. Names meant everything in this story. He doesn't even get a name. The Hebrew loosely translated says, Mr. So-and-so. He's John Doe. We have no idea who this guy is. You'll see why next week. But 
though there is an unnamed redeemer in the story, we do bad, we would do well to remember this. There is, in fact, there has always been a redeemer nearer than Boaz, nearer all along, hovering in the shadows of the narrative behind all of the human agents and human actions going on, reaching out to his beloved sheep and showing them grace upon grace. And friends, that's the real love story that's going on here in the book of Ruth. Ruth and Boaz are not the point of the story. God's love for his people is the real love that is being exposed and being, um, and, and being celebrated here in the story. It was the love of God that kept him from ending the entire world when Adam and Eve first sinned. It, it was the love of God that chose and called Abraham and then maintained covenant faithful love to all of the children of Abraham who would run and chase after other gods and lesser loves. It's the love of God that brings life and breath and light and rain, crop and harvest, blessings to his children in all of the shapes that those blessings take. And it's ultimately the love of God that brought Jesus into the world, leaving the glories of heaven and the blessings of the throne to become one of us so that we might be one with him. He came to the lowliness of Bethlehem where there, no, there, was no, there was no refuge for him. Unlike Ruth, there was no place of rest for Jesus in the house of bread. There was no Boaz to protect him. It was the love of God that took Jesus from the delights of heaven to the disgrace of the cross, all because of the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love of God. God spread the corner of his garment over us and gave us the robe and the rescue of his son in exchange for the ruin of our sin. Even though Naomi was taking a good idea and going about it in all of the wrong ways, God still worked for her redemption. That means there's welcome for you. There's welcome for me. However, you've been trying to get an exit strategy out of your current circumstances, even though it looks like the right thing to do, but maybe you've gone about it in the wrong ways. This and put him on the cross. And he spread his robe over us. He spread his garment. He covered us in the shadow of his wings because he loves us. Come, thou long expected our rest in thee.